Well, good morning, Gateway family. Hope you all had a great Thanksgiving. It is good to see you as we gather together this morning. So we continue in the Gospel of John as we journey through it. We're coming to John chapter 13 today. So thinking about John 13, I want to begin with a very simple question for you. But that's this. What is... Am I not on this morning? Am I not there? Okay. As we continue through the Gospel of John in John 13, I want to ask a simple question this morning, and that is simply this. What is love? We think about that word a lot. We talk about love. But, but what is love? Too often, I think we relegate love to just being a feeling, an emotion. But really, love is an action. It's a choice that we make. Love is, includes the words we say, words we choose to say, and, well, words we choose not to say, right? Love means we do certain things, and love also means we don't do certain things because we want the good of another person. With that in view, I want to ask you, what words, what actions help you feel loved? What is it that other people do that when you respond with a feeling of being loved, when they say certain things, when they don't say certain things, when they do certain things, when they don't do certain things, what is it for you that leads you to feeling the most loved? Well, I could only suspect at this point that a lot of what we would have come up with at this point would be things like affirming words. When people tell me nice things, it makes me feel loved. Or when people do certain give me certain gifts that I like, or when they respond to me in a way that I like, I feel loved. What I'm assuming we don't typically think about is feeling loved when someone rebukes us, or feeling loved when someone steps on our toes, so to speak, or feeling loved when someone does something that's right but makes us really uncomfortable. Those are things we don't typically associate with feeling loved. Well, today we're going to see in John chapter 13 the great love Jesus has for his followers. And part of Jesus' great love for his followers is a part that we typically get drawn to, his love for us and that he came to serve. He came to sacrifice himself so that we might be saved. And so we're drawn to that. We're often going to see Jesus' love today involves things like rebuke, correction, stepping on the disciples' toes, so to speak, even commanding them to do things that they really don't want to do, that are repulsive to them. But friends, all these are a very real part of Jesus' love. And so this morning as we think about Jesus' love, I want you to realize that his love is so great He doesn't just leave us where we are. His love is so great, he changes us. He loves us so much, he doesn't just leave us where we are, but he changes us. If you're not there, turn to John chapter 13 or find it on your Bible app, because we're coming to a transition point in the book of John. We've seen the first 12 chapters of John so far. In the first 12 chapters, it's been the public ministry of Jesus. We have seen Jesus teaching people. We've seen Jesus appealing to people. We've seen miracle after miracle, sign after sign in this. But we come to chapter 13, and we're coming to a big transition here because Jesus will no longer address the crowds. Jesus no longer will appeal to people on this. Chapters 13 through 17 now are Jesus focused on his disciples. What happens here in chapter 13 through the next five chapters is that Jesus will be in the upper room where he celebrates the Passover with his disciples. He's going to teach them one last time over this. And over these next several months, we're going to go slowly through these five chapters and look at what Jesus has to say to his disciples before his crucifixion. But as Jesus begins his teaching time with them, he's going to do so with a very radical action, something that's unforgettable, something that's really unthinkable, something that's really memorable, but also to the disciples is very repulsive. And Jesus is going to kneel down and wash the feet of his disciples. And so as we read this account of Jesus washing the feet of his disciples, I want you to look for two things as we're reading. Number one, why does Jesus wash their feet? What's going on here? I believe there's two reasons we'll see in the text, but as we're reading, be looking at that. Why does Jesus wash the disciples' feet? And then number two, what does he require of them in response? 
So why does Jesus do this thing that seems so strange, so unthinkable? And then what does he require of them in response? So as we come to John chapter 13, can I ask you to stand, please, if you're able, to, in honor of the reading of the word of God. Friends, what a treasure we have that we have got God's very words of life to us in this. I'll be reading John chapter 13, starting in verse 1 through verse 20. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash, except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That is why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place. And when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. Whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Would you pray with me? Father, we are so grateful for your word, and I pray today, God, your word would come alive to us. Lord, for an account that is probably familiar to so many in this room of, Lord Jesus, you washing the feet of your disciples, I pray today you would give us fresh eyes to see, to understand, to understand, Lord, your love for us, but to understand what that looks like and what you require of us as well. So Holy Spirit, would you come, would you illuminate the text, would you let it come alive to us, and would you transform us as we meet with you, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So the one thing I want you to see from John chapter 13 is simply this. In his love for us, Jesus not only saves us, he also changes us. In his love for us, Jesus not only saves us, he also changes us. We see his great love. We see a love that is so deep here that Jesus saves us. He rescues us from our sin when we could not save ourselves. But we also see here that in his great love for us, he changes us. Jesus does not leave us where we are. Well, if you're wondering where I get this from in the text, hang on, because we're going to see it here, that throughout this washing of the disciples' feet, it's really about his love for us and him saving us and him also changing us. So first of all, let's look at the context, make sure we understand what's going on. Look back in verses 1 and 2 here. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. And we'll just stop... Right there. What's going on here, friends? Jesus is moving to the cross. 
he's already returned to Jerusalem to die. He's already had the triumphal entry. He's already appealed to the crowd one final time. And our account picks up on Thursday evening. This is the night before Jesus will be crucified. This account is beginning now the night that he will be betrayed. He's just a few hours away from Judas's betrayal of him on this. So truly when it says the hour has come, the hour has come. He's a few hours away from being betrayed, a few hours away from being tried, and less than a day away from being crucified. Truly what's about to happen in the next 24 hours is he's about to depart out of this world to the Father. And I just want to remind us, though I've said it before, it's very fitting here to remind us that Jesus' death was not a defeat. Jesus' death was a triumph. We need to get that in mind. He's not some helpless man on a cross. He is triumphing. He has come to do what he's doing, what he had come to do. It's the divine plan of God in place. And so he's triumphing here as the divine plan of God is falling into place. Notice how much he is on the throne, how much this is happening according to his plan. Look at verse 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, they had come from God and was going back to God. And so just pause there again. How much have been given into Jesus' hands? How much? All things. Do we really believe that all things are in his hand? If so, is the cross in his hands? Yes. Is Judas's betrayal in his hands? Yes. There's nothing happening here by chance. God is not up in heaven being like, oh, I didn't see that one coming. How do I make him fix this mess here? This is all the sovereign plan of God. He is triumphing here. Everything is happening just as God ordained it would happen. Even Judas's betrayal was part of the ordained plan of God here. Look down in verse 18 towards the end of what we read today. He's speaking to his disciples. He said, I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Even before Judas' betrayal, again, God's not up in heaven coming up with plan B because of what Judas is doing. This was prophesied way back in the book of Psalms. Everything is happening the way God has ordained that it would happen. There's no wavering in his authority here. He's triumphing in all that is going on. And with Jesus on the throne, everything's happening as he ordained and planned it would happen. What is he doing in his final hours? He has a few hours so he's betrayed. And what is he doing here? Look back at verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. That's what the next five chapters are about of John. It's his love for his disciples. Therefore, he's teaching them. Therefore, he is serving them. Therefore, he is rebuking them in his love. He is loving them to the end. And I love what John does here because this phrase to the end is actually a Greek word that has two different meanings. And I think John put it in here with double meaning. It means what we see translated here, to the end, time-wise. But it also means to the utmost. What is Jesus doing? In his final hours before he's betrayed and arrested, he is loving his disciples all the way to the last moment. And he's not just loving them. He is loving them to the utmost. He is showing us a model of supreme love of what true love really looks like here. He's loving them and his correction of them. He's loving them and washing their feet. He's loving them and being ready to die for them the very next day. And so look at what he does in his love for his disciples, verses 4 and 5. He rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments And taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. Now, friends, it's easy for us in our culture to lose sight of what's going on here. We're so familiar with this nice little story of Jesus washing the disciples' feet. We miss the wonder of what is really going on here. Here is God himself, the Son of God, and he takes off his outer clothes. That means he is in nothing but a loincloth now. 
He is in the position of a slave. He is wearing what only a slave would wear. No decent person removes their outer garments in front of other people like that except for the slaves. Here is the creator of the world in nothing but a loincloth who is stooping down to wash the feet of these disciples who are so weak in their faith. The hands that made the world are now stooping to wash the dirt and the dust and the mud and the gunk off the feet of people that he himself had made who were so weak in their faith. He's taking the position that's so low, not even Hebrew slaves would do what he did. This was considered so underneath all dignity, so below any person. They did not even make Hebrew slaves do this task because it was considered so undignified and so very low. And here is the creator of the world who has all things in his hands, who basically undresses to a loincloth, stoops down and begins to wipe dirt off the feet of his disciples here. No one would ever in this culture stoop so low. It was perplexing. It was offensive. They didn't understand what was going on. Hence, Peter's really rebuke in response to Jesus. Look in verse 6 here. He, Jesus, came to Simon Peter and said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I'm doing you do not understand now, but afterwards you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash your feet, or sorry, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. They assume, the scholars say that once Jesus began to undress and to start washing feet, there was probably silence in the room. Everyone is stunned that he would do this. But when he gets to Peter, we know Peter's kind of brash, and so Peter vocalizes what everyone else is thinking. What are you doing, Jesus? How could you be possibly doing this? And when Jesus explains to him, he'll understand later. Notice back in verse 8, Peter's objection here, because there's a double negative in this. He says, Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet seem where the English loses it because the Greek has two negatives in here. It literally says, you shall by no means wash my feet, no, never. It couldn't get any more emphatic from you shall by no means wash my feet, no, never, Jesus, shall you do that. Now, can you imagine saying that to God? Peter is looking at God and saying, you cannot do this, no, never, absolutely not, you are not allowed to do this to me. Why does he respond so strongly? Because, he underst- because Jesus is stooping low. He's taking the form of a servant to do something that he considers so undignified. What is Jesus up to in doing something like this that is so culturally offensive in a lot of ways? Well, he's loving them. He's loving them to the utmost, to the end. And he's doing this for a very specific reason. Because he's teaching them and he's teaching us. He's teaching them about his sacrifice. He's teaching them about how he will forgive sin. He's also showing them how they are to treat one another. And so we'll see in his love for us, Jesus not only saves us, he also changes us. And we see both of those things from this particular act he's doing. So let's look at how this this shows us how Jesus saves us. Now, on the surface level, we get what he's doing. He's washing feet. There's a lot more symbolism intended here than just the washing of the feet. How do we know that? How do we know we're not just reading something in the text? Well, Jesus tells us there's supposed to be more symbolism here than that. Look down in verse 7 when he responds to Peter. Jesus answered him, What I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterwards you will understand. Well, Peter understood what he was doing on the surface level, right? He objected. He understood that Jesus was undressing to a loincloth, getting a basin of water and washing his feet. He understood what was happening. He didn't like it. But Jesus is saying there's something deeper going on here, a deeper spiritual meaning here that you don't get yet. But guess what, Peter? One day you will. And in verse 7, he says, afterwards you will understand. After what? After Friday. After the crucifixion. After Sunday, after the resurrection, Peter will then understand what is going on here. And what is going on here is this external washing of feet by Jesus is a picture of the internal cleansing from sin that Jesus offers. 
This is not just a nice deed Jesus is doing. He's showing us a picture that he cleanses us from our sin. He washes the dirtiest dirt out of our lives. He changes us, and that is what he was coming to do. Look at verse 8 as he continues here. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Again, Jesus is talking on a spiritual level here, and he makes it very clear to Peter, unless you let me cleanse you from something much worse than the dirt on your feet, unless you let me do that to you, you have no share with me. The word share means participation. It means fellowship. He's saying if you don't get what's going on here, if you don't let me take some away the, the dirt in your life, the sin that is worse than the dirt on your feet, you have no fellowship with me. You cannot know me. And so this is what we saw last week. Those people who are like that remain in darkness. They are lost. And Peter doesn't get that analogy. He still doesn't get that Jesus is speaking about sin and being cleansed from sin. But look down in verse 10. Jesus goes on. He says, Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash, except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. Again, Jesus is talking on a spiritual level here. He has said, you are all clean. Well, he hasn't washed Peter's feet yet. He's only made it partway around the table. They're not all physically clean. So what is going on here? He's saying, the ones I've chosen, the ones who are my followers, you are already clean. You will be made clean because of my sacrifice the next day. I've already forgiven you of your sin because what I'm doing tomorrow. He's speaking of the spiritual cleansing that he is going to give to them. When all of their sin is put on him on the cross the next day, and all of his righteousness is put upon them, so when God the Father looks at them, He sees no sin because Christ has paid the penalty. Rather, he sees all of Christ's righteousness put on them. Jesus is telling them that I've washed you. It has been done. I will become your substitute, and therefore you will be made right with God because of that. And so for us, friends, when we trust Christ, the same thing happens. He washes us of all of our sin. Not by just ignoring it. God's so holy he can't. You've heard me say that over and over. But rather, when we trust in him, all of our sin gets put on Christ. And he bears it on the cross. The wrath of a holy God is poured out against that sin so that our sin could be forgiven. So we as sinners could be forgiven. And we get all of Christ's righteousness in this. And this is what he's showing us right here, that we can be justified. We can be cleansed of our sin, not because of anything we do, but because of what he has done for us. And so Jesus in his deep love is giving them a stunning picture of salvation. That he's going to stoop himself to the lowest place, a place below a slave, to wash their feet. To show them that on the very next day he's going to take an even lower place. He's going to hang on a cruel Roman cross so that their deeper issue of the sin inside them, not just the dirt outside, could be dealt with even more strongly than the dirt on their feet he's dealing with right there at the supper table. And friends, that rescue that he offers is absolutely amazing. But you've heard me say before, too often I think we stop there. We see the salvation he offers is kind of like a get-out-of-hell-free card, and then we go live like we want to live. But Jesus didn't just die to save us from our sin. He died to change us as well. And friends, you've heard me say over and over, if we think that we can pray a prayer and become a follower of Christ so we can go to heaven, then we have no desire to be changed by him. Friends, we have deceived ourselves, and we are not in Christ. If we are in Christ, he puts within our heart a love for him and a love for his word, and he begins to change us. Jesus loves us too much to leave us where we are. He loves us too much to leave us with our strongholds of sin. He, leaves, he loves us too much to leave us separated from him and just living on our own, just hoping we don't go to hell when we die. He loves us so much, he will change us. And his love for us, he not only saves us, he also changes us. And that's what's going on in this text as well. Not only is he giving us this beautiful picture of salvation and what he's going to do with the sacrifice, he's also changing the disciples right before their eyes. Remember, 
they need changing here. There's some context to what's going on in this room that I think we miss sometimes when we read it. So I want you to turn to Luke chapter 22 because Luke records a different detail for us of what's happening on the same night in the same room right before <coughs> excuse me, this foot washing occurs. Remember, this is the night before his, his crucifixion. This is the night he's going to be betrayed. They're celebrating the Passover. He institutes the Lord's Supper that we're going to celebrate in just a few minutes. That's all going on right here. Look in Luke chapter 22, verses 14 and 15 for the context of what's going on. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. Now, does this sound like what we're talking about today? Same time, same place. Luke's just giving us a different account of what's going on. The hour has come for Jesus. He's at the table. He's in the upper room. He's eating with the disciples. Look at verse 15. He said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. So Luke is kind of giving us a little backstory here that we don't see in John. This is the beginning of the Passover meal with the disciples. Now go down to verse 24. Jesus has instituted the Passover with them. He's celebrating it with them. He's making the Lord's Supper. And look at what the disciples immediately start doing after they see this. Verse 24. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Friends, what's Jesus in the upper room. He's about to be betrayed. He's celebrating the Passover with them. He's made it into the Lord's Supper. And what do they do? They don't fall on their face. They start going, I'm better than you. I'm better than you. I'm better than you. And they have an argument as to who is the greatest. That's what's going on here on this. At the table, they're not responding to Jesus in worship. They're fighting over which one of them is going to be the most elevated, the most exalted. It's basically their pride coming to the surface. Now, keep that in mind and go back to John chapter 12. Sorry, John chapter 13. Jesus institutes the Passover, the Lord's Supper here. The disciples start arguing about who is the greatest. And so what does Jesus do? He strips down to a loincloth and starts scrubbing their feet. Do you realize what he's doing? He is rebuking them with as harsh of a rebuke as possible, but as gently as possible also. They're going, I'm better than you, I'm better than you, I'm better than you. And all of a sudden they see him stand up, take off most of his clothes, get down on the ground and start scrubbing their feet, a place that only a slave would do. I hope you realize what a rebuke he is giving of his disciples here because he loves them so much. He's not going to sit by passively and let them argue in their pride about who's the greatest. He loves them so much he humbles himself to wash their feet, to rebuke them because he loves them because they need to change. He loves them too much to leave them where they are. With that in view, now go back to John chapter 13, verse 13 here. It says, You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. So he's already done this act of washing their feet. Now, what does he begin with his statement to explain it to them? He says, You call me teacher. You call me Lord. Now, remember the word Lord means master. It means boss, the one we are to obey. He says, In your words... You acknowledge that I'm your teacher. In your words, you're acknowledging that you believe that I am to be your boss. I am to be your master. He's basically pointing out to them, are you really acting that way? It is one thing for us to say that Christ is our Lord. It's a whole other thing for us to live like it. And he is showing them very clearly that though they profess with their mouth that they're following him as master and Lord, their actions are showing anything but that. They're arguing about who's greater. They're not acting like he is their Lord. Now look at verse 14 as well. It says in verse 14, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Again, they've been arguing about who is the greatest, so he, so he gets down and washes their feet. He doesn't say, now, if you can get to a place perhaps where you one day feel like you might could do this, I want you to consider it. He says, no, I've done it. You ought to do it. Also, and look at verses 15 and 16. In case they miss it, he gets really direct with them in his rebuke of them. For I have given you an example 
that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master. There was a messenger greater than the one who sent him. He's saying, in basically the words of Nike, just do it. You've seen what I have done for you. Quit arguing about who's greater and now start serving one another with this. Friends, realize if they had been asked to wash Jesus' feet, they would have done it, probably reluctantly, but they would have done it because they understood he was the master, the boss, and they were below him. They probably could have done that. When it flips and Jesus washes their feet, they get all repulsed by this because they realize how wrong it is for the master to be washing their feet. But when Jesus says you need to wash one another's feet, that is like anathema to them. This is the group that is arguing about who's going to be greater. Jesus is saying, listen, it's not just enough for me to wash your feet now. You go wash each other's feet. You go humble yourself with each other. Quit trying to fight over who's going to be greater. And you go now and you do this thing that you think is so repulsive, is so awful. You now do it to humble yourself and serve one another on them. He steps on their toes. He sees the pride in their heart. And he loves them so much he does not leave them there. He doesn't leave them in their comfort zone. He doesn't kind of pander them to what they want to be. He makes sure they understand how sinful their hearts are. He serves them to show that to them. And then he commands them to do this to one another. But look at what happens when he calls them to obey. Look at verse 17. It says, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Again, this is, he's, I just asked him to do something that is anathema to them. He says, but look, if you will do this, you will be blessed. You will receive blessing from the Lord when you obey. Friends, let me remind us, God's commands are not given as burdens to us. They are given because God knows what is best for us, and he loves us so much, he tells us to do that which is going to bring us the greatest joy in our lives. These aren't things that are designed to be punishment for us. His commands like this are designed so that we might find joy in who we are in Christ, if they will, by God's grace, humble themselves, put other people before themselves, obey because Jesus is their Lord, what they get in verse 17 is the blessing. In verse 17, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. And friends, the same is true for us. Jesus, in his love for us, not only saves us, he also changes us. Friends, this was hard for the disciples. I don't want us to miss that fact. Again, Jesus is calling them to do something that they not just don't want to do. He's calling them to do something that is repulsive to them. He is stretching them because he loves them. And friends, we need to be reminded that Jesus' love is not designed to spoil us or to pamper us. Jesus' love is not about getting us from birth to death in the safest, happiest, easiest, most comfortable, and wealthiest way possible. That's not what Jesus' love is about. Jesus' love is about rescuing us from the penalty of sin, saving us so that we can be restored to a right relationship with God. And then he's also in his love rescuing us from the power of sin in our life. He's changing us, and he is at work changing us so that we can be who he's called us to be. Friends, there's joy in that. There's delight in that as we do that. And so, friends, as we come to a time of communion this morning, we get to celebrate this morning the very thing that the disciples were celebrating that night in the room. We're celebrating the Passover that Jesus then made about his body and his blood. It's a reminder of his particular sacrifice. But, friends, as we come to it, I think our text today demands us to ask some questions of our heart before we observe communion, before we absorb observe the Lord's Supper. Because again, Jesus in his love doesn't just save us, he changes us. So before we observe the, the Lord's Supper day, I think it's important for us to wrestle with some questions from the text in our own heart. First of all, do you really know that Jesus has saved you? Do you really know he's rescued you from the penalty of sin, that you stand forgiven in God, that all of your sin was placed on Christ and all of Christ's righteousness was placed on you? Do you really believe that? Have you been washed by Jesus? Not just a foot washing, but has he cleansed you from the sin of your heart? The sins of your heart that no one else knows besides you 
and God, has he rescued you? And are you experiencing, as it said in here, a share with him, a participation with him, a fellowship with him? That's where we have to start, friends. If you are in Christ and know that Christ has washed you and you are being changed by him and you know you have fellowship with God, you are welcome to observe communion. You don't have to be a member of Gateway. This is open to anyone who truly is knowing God, who truly has repented their sins and trusted in Christ as their Lord and Savior. And I think for all of us as well, the text not only demands us to ask that question, but it demands us to look in our heart as well and say, is anything changing because I know Jesus? Friends, it should be a scary place in our heart if we say we confess Christ and there is nothing different in our hearts. If we are where we were a year ago, five years ago, ten years ago or longer, and we say we're a follower of Christ and the same sin strongholds remain and the same attitudes remain and we don't see any growth, friends, that should cause us to have a little bit of trembling and to say, God, am I really in you? Because in his love, Jesus doesn't leave his followers where they are. He changes them. Do you see evidence in your heart of Jesus changing you on this? I think there's one more question we need to ask of this text before we come to the Lord's table there. And that is to realize that in this situation here, the washing of the feet was to address a specific area of pride in the disciples' life. He was dealing with the fact that they, didn't, that they were concerned about who was greater, not wanting to serve one another. So it's not one of those things going, check, I'm okay here, I don't have to do anything with this. Perhaps there's another area besides the foot washing that we need to come face to face with. Are we willing to obey all the commands of Jesus? Is there anything in our hearts to where we know what Jesus commanded, much like the disciples at the time, we've been unwilling to follow him on that? Perhaps it's a command to not let any root of bitterness grow up in our heart. Is there any bitterness that we're not dealing with in our hearts that God has called us to let go of and to forgive someone else? Perhaps it's a situation where someone has wronged you and you're not reconciled to them. And God very clearly tells you that before you bring your gift to the altar, you need to go and be reconciled to that person. Friends, are we being willing to obey God, even things like that? Are we obeying God at the command to confess our sins one to another? Are we obeying God in the commands to, in humility, count others more important than ourselves? And are we obeying the commands to not look lustfully at other people? Are we obeying the commands of God to serve one another? Are we obeying the commands of husbands to live with your wives with deep knowledge and understanding and patient way? Are we, are we obeying God in all these things, friends? Now, I don't know what it is for you, but what we saw with the disciples, they were not obeying God in this point of their pride. And so God in his love for them rebukes them that and changes them of this. And so as we come to the Lord's table, I want us to move beyond thinking of the foot washers as a nice thing Jesus did. It was a rebuke, a very specific sin in their life. It was a picture of his sacrifice. And as we come to the Lord's table today, I want to remind us of what Jesus has done for us. His body was broken on the cross that we could be forgiven our sins. His blood was shed so that we could be forgiven of our sins. And not just so we could stay where we are, but so he could change us. Friends, are we living in such a way that Jesus is our master, our boss, our Lord? If there's anything I mentioned or anything else that the Holy Spirit brings to mind where you realize that you are not submitting to him as master, boss, or Lord, my encouragement to you is to talk to the Lord about that and get right with God before you observe this. This is a serious thing that we do. This is not something that we do just casually. This is something we do in all seriousness because we need the reminders of these things. Listen to verse 17 again. If you know these things... Blessed are you if you do them. Friends, for most of us, it's not a lack of knowledge of why we still struggle with sin in our lives. It's an issue of obedience and making Christ our master. But you know, it's not the only place in Scripture we see this. As we come to the Lord's table, I want you to hear several verses of Scripture as well. We'll put them on the screen just to think about it and reflect on it. Matthew 7, 21 is what I want you to see. Jesus says, and this to me is one of the scariest verses in Scripture. Now, everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But... 
the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Go down a few verses into Matthew 7 to Matthew 7, 24. It says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and then does them will be like a wise man who built his house on a rock. Verse 25. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on the house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Then in verse 26. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. Then in verse 27. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. There's multiple places in Scripture where Jesus warns us about hearing but not obeying. And one more in John chapter 8, verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And in verse 32, And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So friends, as we come to the Lord's table this morning, I want you to think about this particular text. As we receive the elements, I want you to, as you go back to your seat, before you take them, just to ask the Lord, Lord, is there any sin in my life I'm not willing to follow you on? Is there anything I'm holding on to where I'm not submitting to you? Am I really letting you be my master, my boss, my Lord? And if you, the Lord brings anything to mind, I want you to go ahead and do, deal with business with God on that before you observe the elements. And if there's anyone in this room who you know you're not a follower of Christ, you know you've never let Jesus change you, you never let him wash you of the sin that's deep in your heart, I'd encourage you just to stay where you're seated. There's no shame in doing so. No one's going to look at you funny for staying where you are. But you need to use this time to do business with the Lord, to talk to the Lord about it and cry out to him and just ask him, Lord, I don't even believe you're real. But if you're real, would you show yourself to me? Would you use this time not to come and take something that you don't even believe in, but to sit where you are and talk to the Lord and say, if you're really there, God, would you show yourself to me? And let's just see what happens. So we come to the table, I want to remind us from 1 Corinthians 11 why we do this. Paul writes to the people in Corinth, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, it's the night we've been talking about today in John 13, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, and when given thanks, he broke it, and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. As often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Friends, we are going to celebrate what the disciples were looking to that day. The next day, Jesus is going to have his body broken, his blood poured out, and we get to remember that today. But there's a warning here, which is why I gave us those questions earlier. It says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and the, bo- the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So friends, as we come to this, if you're not in Christ, just stay where you're seated and, and talk to the Lord. But if you know that you're in Christ, that you have a part with him, you have fellowship with him, that he's changing you, then you're welcome to come and to celebrate, to realize that his body was broken for the forgiveness of your sins, to realize his blood was poured out, that you might have your sins forgiven. So would you pray with me, and then we're going to ask our praise team to come and receive the elements, and then our deacons will direct you. You'll come to the front, but our deacons will direct you a section of time to come. Lord Jesus, we do come right now in an act of worship to observe the Lord's Supper, to observe communion. Even like the disciples did that evening that we were just reading about in John 13. Lord, thank you for giving us this beautiful symbol of how much your sacrifice for us really cost. Lord, thank you, Jesus. Thank you that you were willing to go to the cross, to have your body broken, your blood shed, that we might be cleansed of our sin. Thank you for washing us of our sin. Lord, I pray we would treasure that thought just as the disciples had their feet washed. Lord, you've washed all the sin away from us. And Lord, I pray we would treasure that in our hearts. But Lord, for myself and for these precious brothers and sisters, Lord, if there's areas of our lives where it's not looking like we're really following you, 
areas where we're not seeing change happen, I pray that before we take these elements, God, that you, by your Holy Spirit working, would convict us of those areas. That we'd be quick to repent of them and look to you for the grace that we need to live for you. So, Lord, would you take this time and use it to change us as only you can change us. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.